there's something about cricket which um I don't know when you walk onto that field everything stops and you're just present in that moment and while it's a team sport it's also very individualized so uh, the result obviously is a team wins or a team loses but it can actually it can also just come down to that one player so the person who hits the winning run or runs um, and the person who bowls and takes that last wicket um, that's on that one person and they get to celebrate with the 11 other people on the park and I think that's what I really liked about the nature of cricket is that it was such a team orientated sport and I loved having teammates always. But I didn't know that um, that was going to be very short-lived, that experience of me playing at the top, um, which um, was really hard for me to sort of run into injury um, in its first instance when I did. Uh, and for that whole dream to be shattered in the, the blink of an eye was, was a really tough experience for me. We all have dreams, goals for ourselves that we fully dedicate our lives to achieving. But what happens when those dreams are suddenly shattered? When our lives are drastically altered and we have to look within ourselves for the strength to carry on. Former cricketer Kath Koshal has faced those questions under some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable. Her story is one of tragedy and heartbreak, but also one of bravery and unexpected joy. It's the story of a woman who's used kindness and gratitude to not only save her own life, but to power an international movement. I'm Joseph Fourier, and this is More Than an Athlete. I got my first professional contract, obviously at 14 in Australia, and then the UK, obviously it's quite big there as well, cricket. So um, I got handed my first international contract um, with Middlesex at the age of 19. I spent two years there, come back with um, even a better skill set to, to then launch my international career for Australia at the age of 22, which was um, fantastic. I'd scanned up after my debut. Um, I debuted at the Adelaide Oval in, in Australia, in South Australia, um, and I'd scanned up prior to that game, um, understanding that I had a little bit of a problem in my left foot, so it started to go numb. And they scanned up my back, uh, my lower spine, and they found a, a pretty badly slipped disc. And uh, they sort of said to me, Kathy, you're a 50-50 chance of, of, I guess, playing. We're, we're potentially going to rule you out of the next round. Um, however, we could try cortisone injections into your spine, and we could see if that might might work. Um, and we did that. We had the double cortisone injection um, and my ribs started to play up as a result of that. But I mean, who's going to make it to that level when it's been your goal and your dream for 15 years and then give up the opportunity when given the choice? So they said to me, it's up to you. It's a 50-50 chance, but please understand the risk if you continue to play. And I signed the waiver and I went on the park and um, my life changed in a pretty dramatic way. So what happened was I, was I was sort of fielding, I was in the field and the batter hit the ball past me quite quickly. It raced off to the boundary, which would have it just meant that was, I could casually chase after it. I twisted to my left and this, the disc that was protruding in my spine, it came out that quickly that the two vertebrae actually cracked onto each other um, in a very big way. Um, so the bottom vertebrae part of it cracked off and embedded itself into my spinal cord. Um, and I was left there paralyzed, uh, unable to feel anything below my waist. I had the first of five unsuccessful surgeries in the hospital that day. Um, and it was tough. I woke up to the news that there was some pretty bad damage and that I probably wouldn't ever walk again. Uh, if I did, it would be a miracle. 
So my family sort of came to my side quite quickly and uh, gave me all the support and love that I needed at that point in time. And I just went days uh, in between surgeries. It was, I guess, all the drugs that are through your system. You don't really remember much about it. But uh, knowing that I'd be okay, I guess, with the support and the good people around me. But uh, I mean, my dream had just been shattered and that was a really hard reality for me to face. One doctor just sort of believed believed in me uh, when when everyone else sort of didn't, I guess. So he came in and he said, "Look, Kathy, you're still quite young. You're only 23. Uh, you're fit. You're healthy. We know that. You've trained hard. Um, I believe that there's one chance that you have at potentially walking again with a spine like yours and with the damage and the injury that you've just sustained. We think you qualify for what's called a total disc replacement." It's a bit of a new age sort of surgery. Uh, Back home, there was only one surgery that was doing them. His name was Matthew Scott Young. And I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to take that one chance. It's the only chance I've got at this point in time because everyone else kept telling me there was no hope. So off I went. I was again airlifted to um, to Brisbane from Melbourne. And that was done. Um, You lie there after that surgery in in traction for like two weeks. And that's what I did. And all sorts of head noise starts creeping in. Like, uh, was this worth it? I'm in a lot of pain. I can't really remember what's going on. Um, And you go in and out out of, I guess, consciousness a little bit. And it's tough. It's really tough. I sort of said, we've got you two weeks here lying flat on your back. Um, and then we'll, we'll see how you're going and see how the recovery is moving. So that's what I did for two weeks, just laid there. And um, fortunately for me, with the help of the physios and the doctors, um, I did. I took my first step. So I was still unable to feel anything below the waist, but with their help and their guidance, you know, the hands and the shoulders to lean on, I was, I was able to, to take my first steps, which was amazing and such a relieving sort of feeling um, to a had after that three-week period that I just have of everyone basically saying that I'd never walk again. So that was amazing. But um, the reality of taking those steps just meant that I had a lot. I knew in the back of my head that if I was to ever do that unaided and without the assistance of the people that were holding me up in order to do that, that I was going to have to commit myself to a pretty uh, grueling process of being able to do that independently. The, the never say die attitude had not really left me at that point in time. So um, I was going to do the unthinkable. I was going to return back to playing cricket professionally in the back of my head um, because I just thought it was achievable at that point in time. My recovery was sort of labelled as quite miraculous and um, I was on track to sort of be able to do that. Maybe not for Australia, but certainly at state level. Everything seemed to, to go really, really well um, until one morning I woke up and I couldn't really feel anything in my left leg again. It had gone really numb and um, it was really heavy, sort of like when you sit on your arm funny when you're watching too much TV and it gets that pins and needle, that kind of feeling. It was a bit like that and I tried to sort of give it some time and get myself in the right position, but it was really, really heavy, which was abnormal and I flicked on my bedside light table and I pulled up the covers and I looked down at my leg and it was just completely blue, like a bruised colour, but the whole leg, the entire leg. And I thought, this isn't right. So I crawled into the bathroom and I remember my surgeon saying, Kath, if that ever happens to you, your bladder and your bowel shut down, um, that's life-threatening. You need to get to an emergency room because um, with a spinal cord issue like yours, that's uh, one the first sign that your organs are starting to shut down. And I thought, oh my God, it's happening. I got to the emergency ward, I parked out the front and I crawled myself into there. So they got a wheelchair, put me into the wheelchair 
and took me into the first consultation room and they're pinning up my leg and measuring it and doing all these sorts of readings and I was sort of unbeknown to to me what was going on around me and um, it was about half a day worth of testing and lots of concern from me and I hadn't really called anyone at this point to let them know what was happening and one doctor walked in, it was my doctor, my trusted doctor and I'll never ever forget what he said to me, it was simply this, it was Kath, um, we're really sorry, the news is not great, we're going to amputate your leg. And I just went, whoa. That is not something that I expected to hear ever. Uh, I know that I've broken my back, but no one ever told me that I was at risk, of, uh, at risk of having my leg amputated. What do you mean? Can you explain it to me? He said, yeah, sure. Um, anyone with normal, healthy legs, they have a normal blood pressure reading in their leg anywhere between 90 and 100%. Anything below 20% is dire and anything below 10% is dead. And I said, okay, where's my leg at? What, what are we reading? And he said, you're at 7%. I said, whoa, it's, it's dead. And he said, yeah. He said, that's why it's turned blue. And I said, oh, my God. So I called my brother. He's amazing. Uh, and I said, can you come in? And he said, of course. So he gets there. And we just started pleading, saying, like, look, I have nothing against people with disabilities or having leg am legs amputated. But for me, it was really unexpected. And I needed to just give it a fighting chance, like everything that I did in life up until that point. I said, okay, can you entertain me for a second? Can you just give me a chance, give me a time frame to be able to do something, to be able to keep this leg? And they said, of course, you've got two weeks. We think exercise could help. I was like, fantastic. I'm an athlete. I can exercise. I know how to do that. Um, give me a chance. And they said, yeah, of course, two weeks, but we've penciled you in for surgery to have it amputated. And I said, okay. The stress and the anxiety of ultimately what was going to happen, they were going to cut my leg off. I'd go to the gym there at 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. And the security guards would notice the lights on. It's manned 24 hours a day by a security guard. And he'd notice the lights on and he'd come in and go, Kath, what are you, what are you doing here? It's two o'clock in the morning. And I'd say, look, here's the challenge that I'm up against. Can you help me? He'd say, of course. So he would get like electrical tape and strap my leg into a spin bike or a cross trainer. And he would leave me there uh, for 45 minutes, go back to his post, come back, unstrap me. And he'd strap me into the new machine, the next machine. And it was the first time that I noticed that, that people were really good when they saw another person in a struggle and that humans genuinely, genuinely want to help other people, right? I think so often in life and in the world around us, when we're looking, uh, we're always quite time poor and we never stop to consider what other people are going through. And it meant the world to me to have his support for those micro moments that he gave to me. Uh, I got to the last day before I was due to be amputated. I sort of stayed at my parents' house that night because of everything that I was facing um, and they were going to support me and take me into surgery the next day. It's a pretty confronting sort of feeling knowing your destiny that the next day you're going to be one leg less than you were the day going to bed. And I woke up at about 3am in the morning feeling really, really unwell. I don't really remember much about it. I'm really relying on my dad to tell me the next part. But uh, I think I must have gotten up to go to the to the bathroom and I collapsed unconsciously on the floor. Uh, my dad heard the thud. He picked me up, put me in the car, took me to the nearest hospital. And it was there we found that I'd been bleeding internally from the surgery that I had through my stomach because I had a lot of nerve damage and spinal cord issues. Um, the blood simply wouldn't carry. The limited blood supply simply wouldn't carry into my left leg. Um, so I was rushed off again to emergency surgery. Uh, the bleed was fixed um, on the spot and I woke up to the news that um, I had kept it uh, and it was out of immediate danger for that day. But but in order to keep it and to keep my leg healthy and if I ever wanted the chance at walking again, uh, that I should pack up my life and quit my job and delist myself as a contracted player and commit myself to a course of six to 12 months in rehabilitation. So that's what I did. Um, again, not really seeing many other options around me. I, I, I did. I packed up my life and quit my job and did all that kind of stuff and, and went through the process of entering full-time rehab, which was incredibly tough. Uh, I was 23 still at this point in time and 
rehab in Australia certainly is just not a nice place to be. Um, they, there were three categories in rehab or the one that I went to and that was the over 65s, the over 75s and the over 85s. So um, what do you do at 23? Who do you turn to? Um, how do you cope in those situations? And for me, they're a step down from hospital. They're just not a pleasant place to be. And they can be really mentally damaging to a person if they're not or if they don't have the right support networks and the right people around them. So I certainly struggled um, the first couple of weeks. I remember calling my best friend. She's a contracted Australian cricketer as well. And I said, look, I'm really struggling here. I've been here a week and I've got six to 12 months of this. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. I think you need to come and pick me up and just take me. I just can't confront this. And I'll never forget what she said. And I think it really highlights um, the importance of having belief in yourself uh, first and foremost, but certainly having others believe in your dreams as well and believing in the abilities that you have. Um, sometimes we, especially when we're confronted with really challenging things in life, we can't see how powerful we can be, but others can see it in us. So having those people that can really back you up is important. She said to me this, it was, Kath, I cannot do this for you. If I could, you know that I would. I would do anything for you. I'm your best friend. Um, what I do know is that you can do it and I do believe in you and I've got your back. And with that said, I just sort of committed myself to the process of walking. My journey changed uh, in a big way. About three weeks into my stay, I ended up meeting a fellow patient. So his name was Jim. He was also an athlete. Um, he was a rugby professional rugby league player in Australia. And we're facing very similar challenges um, of both learning how to walk again. Uh, he was 25, I was 23 at the time. We started off as friends and um, very quickly fell in love, which was a huge shock to me. Um, and I feel very fortunate and lucky that we did and that we found each other in our struggle as well. Um, because who finds love in a rehab centre, right? It's, it's quite funny and laughable, but it meant everything to me. So. We were just like normal young kids, I guess, um, in love, but instead of long walks on the beach, it was wheelchair races in the corridor. The struggle of rehab can't be underestimated, yet it became so light when you're falling in love with someone. Um, and to share a love with someone in such a confronting environment was really special. And I hand on my heart, there is absolutely no chance I'd be walking today without his influence and um, the belief that he began to have in me, in my own abilities, and then the belief that I gave back to him. 12 months after we had been dating, I, um, I'd been considered an outpatient, so I'd been discharged as an inpatient eight months after my initial um, in charge. And uh, Jim had a day to go, um, and our whole life was gonna sort of start. Uh, it was the 13th of November. He was due to be discharged on the 14th of November. We'd dreamt this life. We'd put the lease on a house. Um, we'd done all those sorts of things that we'd been planning and dreaming about in rehab. Um, and then that night, my life changed in the most significant and hardest of ways when he took his own life. So just a um, really incredibly the toughest time that I'll ever go through in my life. I know that I'll never go through something harder than that. I re returned back to rehab for a routine check on my leg, check up on my leg, and um, I walked past his room and just lost it. I had to be sedated by four male nurses pinned to the ground, um, and I woke up from that experience just feeling quite lost, and I remember them saying to me, Kath, 
we just want you to know that this is completely normal. What you've been through is really not normal. It's really abnormal. Um, and all I could think about at that point in time, it may be a bit different to most people, but was if this is normal, if this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life, then I don't want to be normal. Um, I can't feel this way and I don't know how to cope when I'm feeling this way and someone needs to help me. And I'm really glad about what happened next. Um, I guess getting into that solution focused mindset. I was sat down at a coffee table, um, still feeling quite lost. And I looked down onto the water and there was a, a pen and a piece of paper on this coffee table. It was an empty piece of paper. And I don't know what compelled me to do it, but I'm really glad that it happened. I picked up the pen and I started writing down a list of names. And they were of people who had ever helped me in my life, in childhood. But most importantly, I guess, the struggle that I'd been in in the last two years and the experiences that I'd been through. Anyone who had ever helped me in my life. And the next three hours, I just picked up the phone and I called every single one of them. And I still don't know why I did it or what made me do it, but I'm so glad that it happened. It was simply to say thank you to them for helping me. Um, and I think so un so often um, as people and as humans, we underestimate the importance of gratitude and expressing gratitude and kindness. And it changed my life. Um, and I sort of returned back home to Sydney after that experience knowing that everything would be okay so long as I surrounded myself with the right people and so long as I gave myself the opportunity and the chance to be good to myself and to look after myself that I'd be okay. So um, I really didn't know what my life could look like at that point in time. Um, I got given a, an administration job at, um, at a cricket organisation and I started to rebuild my life again at that moment in time and for whatever reason kindness seemed to stand out to me, the kindness of people. Um, so I just started paying it forward. I started doing small little things for people um, and it started to make me feel quite good about myself. Um, I bought dinner for the homeless and I raised money for wheelchairs um, for kids in need with disabilities um, and just started doing little things for people and socially people started following my journey and what I was up to. I accidentally raised close to half a million dollars for a charity one day um, and I say accidentally because it really was an accident and all these things, this commitment to kindness, people just started to take notice and to stop in their tracks and to consider what that actually looked like for them and for me um, and it was amazing so I launched what was only going to be sort of like a, an online blog and I called it Kindness Factory and it was simply no more big or no better than me just doing things for other people and people being inspired by that and following the journey in that way um, which was great um, and I started to sort of get recognized with a few awards and things like that um, which is not why I was doing it it was more so that it just mattered to me to be able to do that and it, I guess I considered that my life had been saved by kindness the kindness of other people so I just decided that I'd put as much back out there as I could and that's all I ever really intended for it to be um, and it, it changed the game for us when another pretty big and significant thing happened in my life. So I returned to rehab um, for another routine checkup and um, I got some good news at rehab. And my doctor said to me, we think we can just discharge you for life. Is that something that you'd want? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be discharged for life. I really don't enjoy this process. So I said, okay, well, before we discharge you, is there anything, any questions that you've got to ask? I said, yeah, I've got one question. Maybe it's more of a statement. I'm not sure. I said, I really miss the competitive nature of playing sport. I loved cricket. I get that I can't play. I can't feel one of my legs, so my left leg. Um, however, is there anything else I could do that you think I might be good at or just something that I can set my mind to physically? And they said, yeah, okay. And they, had, they considered it for a bit. And they all come back to me and they said, well, look, your recovery was based in a pool and on a bike. You're a good swimmer. You can ride a bike. We know that. Adding a run, you could be a paratriathlete. Would you consider that? And I thought, 
wow, I've never really considered that, but I'll give it a go. And I signed up for one of those testers and loved it. I thought this is great. It's something that I can commit myself to. Uh, I was the first person with my disability to do a half Ironman event. I loved it that much. So I got into the long, the long distance and endurance nature of triathlon. And that was amazing. It was a really good milestone in my life. And I thought, well, why stop there? I'll do a full Ironman. It'll be amazing. Um, and one day I went on a training bike ride. It was the 10th of January in 2016. Uh, I started turning right on my bike on this training bike ride. Uh, and I felt a thud on my body. And then everything just went black all of a sudden. Um, I ended up getting hit by a drunk driver from behind and I broke my back again. So this time in four places, um, I shattered my left hip. I broke my right wrist and dislocated my neck um, and the worst part was waking up about two weeks later to the news that um, I was paralysed and that I'd never walk again uh, for the second time in my life. And a lot of self-doubt crept in at those moments um, and it was really hard for me to experience those lows I guess. Um, but again, people sort of came to me and kindness saved my life again. So because I'd created this movement of kindness where I was putting it out there, people recognised that I was no longer in a position when I was in a hospital environment to be able to do that. So they would write to me via social media or online or via email and they would say, look, Kath, we get that you can't do this at this moment in time and thanks for the inspiration. I hope your recovery is going well. Because of you today, I mowed my neighbour's lawn or I donated blood or I tied my sister's shoelace or someone donated a kidney. And I was like, what? So people are sending me acts of kindness because I couldn't do them for other people. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do with this information? This is incredible. So um, I spoke to the guy who designed my website and I said, look, all these people are writing to me. I want to be able to capture this somehow. How do I do that? And he said, look, let's just flip the website. We'll make it more about other people, less about you. Um, and we'll set a goal. Let's try and reach a million acts of kindness. Something's amongst that struggle and that period really stopped me in my track. I had to go to court um, and face the man who had hit me with his car. And it was a three-day process and there were criminal charges um, sort of facing him. And it got to the third day and all the charges were handed out and he ultimately lost his license as a, as a result of those charges. And he, he broke down in tears in court. So I walked up to him. I was in a wheelchair actually, so I wheeled over to him and I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, mate, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, look, I'm really sorry to hear that you're having a bad day. And he said, thanks. I said, how are you getting home today? And he said, well, I can't afford a taxi. My livelihood was dependent on me being able to drive. I've obviously just lost my license, so I can't do that. I said, okay, well, we'll give you a lift home. And this wasn't about kindness or forgiveness. For me, I needed that to happen to experience closure so that I could have the rest of my life, the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years to do whatever I needed to do um, and to let that period of my life go. So often in life, wherever we go around the world, um, it's the same thing. We see hate and we respond to it with more hate and it just creates even more hate. And to be honest, it's not a world that I'm proud to be a part of. And at a very young age, I remember reading a quote and it was simply that the world is changed by your example and not by your opinion. Um, my life now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my life for anything. The experiences that I've been through um, have put me in a really good position to be able to do what I'm doing. I have perspective every single day. 
and um, no longer am I a cricketer, but I'm actually really proud of where that journey as a cricketer has taken me, um, which is probably something that I'm incredibly proud of. So, you know, if I don't break my back the first time, I, I don't mean the love of my life. And um, who was it that said it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved before? Um, and the car accident, I think, then just gave me a whole lot more perspective to be able to then prove to the world that kindness is an incredible strength and something that we need to practice more of around the world. I've got three strategies to keep me as resilient as possible. The first is humour. If you can laugh at least once a day, um, life's going to be okay. The second is gratitude. For me, I wrote that list of people who had helped me and I called them just to say thanks and express gratitude to them and for them. And obviously the third thing that I'd say um, is important for resilience is kindness. If you can find humour, gratitude and kindness in your day, I don't think you're going to have a bad day. strong. I am resilient. I'm a speaker. I am a founder. I am a great person. I am kind. I am more than an athlete. WRTS is produced by John Fontanelli. Our editor is Chris Wotherspoon. Our production assistant is Logan Castrodale. Additional production support by Matt Perret, Lauren Jones, Cody Moore, and Uninterrupted's Athlete Relations Team. Our executive producer is TD St. Matthew Daniel. I'm Joseph Fourier, and this is WRTS. We run this station. <laughs>